Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are living in the end times. Of that you can be sure. We are living in the end times. But maybe not for the reasons that you might think or the things that people point to to say, yes, we are living in the end times. They say things like, well, it's because of all of the, the geopolitical situation. It's because of the, the dissolution of biblical morality. It's because of this, that, and the other thing. People point to different things about our present circumstances and say, oh, that tells us that we are in the end times. But you really need to look no further than the words of our Lord Jesus in today's gospel. The first words that he speaks as part of his public ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The implication of the Lord's words here is that now with his advent, with his coming and with him ushering in his kingdom, already now we live in the end times. It started with Jesus's coming and it will continue until his return. It isn't just this one little uh, sliver of time or history that that's the end times. We are living in the end times, friends. At any time, our Lord Jesus could return. It could be today. So it's important for us to recognize that. It's really just what St. Paul is saying as well when he says the appointed time is very short. And the way of this world is just a passing fashion. It's like bell bottoms. It's not going to be here for long. Soon our Lord Jesus will come. This is the implication of Christ's proclamation. The kingdom is at hand. And as we start out in the gospel, the next three weeks, we're just going to be in Mark chapter 1, the very beginning, where Jesus is sort of launching his salvation salvo. It's his first hundred days, so to speak. He's just starting this kingdom movement, this work of God's reign and rule. And we get to see what are the, the priorities of the Lord. What is it that he's focusing on? It's kind of some programmatic movements of his mission. And we start today with perhaps an unlikely place. The Lord is gathering disciples. That's his number one priority. And as we walk through the story this morning, we'll see it unfold in kind of three acts, in the arrival of the Lord, his call, and then their response. So to start then, when Jesus looks at his to-do list, now he's been baptized, he's been through the temptation in the wilderness, he's ready to start this mission in earnest. What's the first thing on his to-do list? All right, let's see here, groceries. No, it's gathering disciples, gathering disciples. And if you were a rabbi in the ancient world and you wanted to gather some disciples and you were looking at kind of the, the ancient version of ZipRecruiter or Indeed or whatever they might be in order to, to find out some capable, competent candidates, you'd have plenty of options there. You would have all the, the Pharisees, right? The teachers of Israel, the scribes, the elders. These were folks who knew their scriptures. They were, were pious, religious people who were very uh, studious in the ways of the kingdom. You could have naturally, Jesus could have naturally turned to some of the Pharisees. Or if he wanted to go more of a secular route, uh, express the way that he's going outside of the usual religious realms, he could have found some philosophers. He could have gone to the Greeks and said, I want some of you folks who are wise in the ways of the world. I'm going to gather you as my disciples. But instead of finding Pharisees or philosophers, Jesus takes door number three, fishermen. <laughs> he wants to recruit some ragamuffins to be his disciples. As Mark paints the picture for us, 
You envision Jesus. He's going into Galilee with a sense of purpose. This isn't just the Lord saying, like, I like to do long walks along the sea, and oh, here's some disciples. No, he is going there intentionally, purposefully, in order to find some fishermen. There he is along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. I want you to picture this. When we think the Sea of Galilee, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's really not a sea. It's not salt water. It's a freshwater lake. And I was looking up the size of the Sea of Galilee because in my mind's eye, I guess I had always thought it was like Lake Michigan, right? It's actually about twice the size of Houghton Lake or about four times the size of Crystal Lake, okay? So it's a, it's a big lake, but it's not gargantuan. It's not a great lake, sorry to say. But it is the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, for Jesus to go along the, the seashore would not be totally unlike what we have here um, as you go along Lake Michigan. When you go and you, you find the fishermen, these are not um, might you th what you might think of as fishermen with the bobbers and casting the reels and so forth. The way that they typically would have done is they would have climbed into their boats, which were similar to like, a, if you can picture like a Viking longboat. Okay? They're getting into these, these long boats to go out, not with uh, a reel, but with a net. They'd have these big circular nets, about 10, 15 foot circular nets, that they would throw out to try and capture as many fish as possible. Now what do you think of when you, when you think of fishermen and Jesus going out to, to uh, enlist some of these fishermen? I mean, there's a sense in which, sort of like what we had at Christmas, where the angels go to the shepherds and you think, yeah, of course, angels go to shepherds. And maybe we're so familiar with the story, we think, well, yeah, you need some disciples, you go to the fishermen. They, just go, they go hand in hand. It's like peanut butter and jelly, disciples and fishermen, they go together. But suffice it to say, this would not have been an obvious move in the ancient world. But what do we know about fishermen? Well, these are working class people. These are our guys who would not have been the best and brightest. They would have been closer to the densest and the dimmest, okay? They're common men. They're regular old guys. This was, and this was a common occupation for many of the people in, in the ancient world. And as I was thinking through, well, what would that look like in today's? What would be a good analogy for our time and place? I mean, you could just say fishermen, but that's not as common of a job as it was in the ancient world. I'd say it'd be akin to like a truck driver today. You know, truck driver is actually the most common job in America today. Drivers aren't. It'd kind of be like a truck driver. And you, you think in your mind, well, what is a truck driver like? Well, it might be kind of a blue collar guy, perhaps a little rough around the edges, a, a little bit uncouth. It doesn't mean they're not smart, not capable, but this is the, the kind of idea that we get when we see Jesus going out to the fishermen. These are the people whom he is enlisting. enlisting. These are common uneducated men. They're the working class. They're a ragtag band of, of ragamuffins. These are who our Lord gathers together as his disciples. It's important for us to recognize that, to see that right off the bat, the collection of the followers of our Lord Jesus, they come from just the, the normal, everyday people. These are who the Lord works through. That's not to say, of course, that he's not going to also involve the upper classes. Indeed, that many uh, philosophers and Pharisees will be numbered among his disciples. But that Jesus, first and foremost, just wants to take regular, everyday people. And to me, to me in terms of the story, this just unpacks what St. Paul will later say in 2 Corinthians that we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, in cracked pots, right? Earthen vessels. Why? In order to show that the surpassing power of God, it belongs to him and not to us. God uses common people for an uncommon mission 
to underscore the fact that the whole spread of his mission, that the, the whole extension of his kingdom is a work of his power. It's a work of his grace that you and I would be numbered among the disciples. We don't need to be some special class. We can be our normal, everyday selves. That's who the Lord wants to collect as part of his disciples, as part of his followers. So there we have it in Act 1. Jesus going along the Sea of Galilee, seeing those fishermen. He's gone out. He sought them out specifically. And then Act 2, the call of our Lord. What's he going to say? How do you summon disciples? Well, for Jesus, it's clear. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Now, this is a profound statement for at least two reasons. First of all, notice how Jesus, speaking to fishermen, says, I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, it's as though the Lord is saying, I am going to repurpose your natural gifts, your natural skills, for my divine purposes. I'm not going to uh, demand that you be or become somebody that you are not already, but instead I'm going to take who you are and I'm going to use you for my mission, you see. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and I will make you Bible trivia all-stars. <laughs> follow me and I will make you powerful preachers. Follow me and I will make you capable ministers. All of those things in their own way will come in turn. But what Jesus says to these fishermen is, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to use who you are, how God has made you, and the skills and the gifts that you have in order to serve me now in the world. Now think about this. This is how God is constantly working. I, I think of a mission of some, a group like the Gideons. You're familiar with the Gideons, right? Because we've been to a hotel or a motel. And you know, yeah, they're the guys that, that put the Bibles beside your bed, right? But did you know that the Gideons is a, a guild of Christian businessmen? And that this is part of their mission, that as Christian businessmen, they have not uh, given up everything to um, just take on a, a different vocation. They have stayed where they are and been witnesses to Christ as businessmen. It's as though Jesus said to them, to them follow me and I will make your business men. See what I did there? Okay. <laughs> so it is in all of our different vocations. Now, sometimes, sometimes Jesus calls us to a totally different line of work. That's true. But many times he says, what are you? Where are you? I'm going to use you in that place and in those ways. I'm going to repurpose your natural gifts and skills and passions for the purposes of my kingdom. It's the first reason why it's significant, this call of Jesus, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. But the second reason is perhaps even more profound. See, because the way that Jesus approaches his whole mission here, it contrasts sharply with the other rabbis of his day. And perhaps you've heard this before. See, it was typical for rabbis of that time not to go out seeking their own disciples, but to sit back and wait for would-be disciples to come to them, to impress them, to cajole them and say, hey, look, I could really be good for you. Let me be one of your disciples. Let me follow you and I'll show you I've got what it takes. I'm really of the upper crust. I'm one that you can count on. That's the way it, was, it would usually work. They would go seeking out the disciples, would go seeking out their rabbi. But 
Jesus flips this on its head, right? Jesus, instead, he seeks out. He takes the initiative. He goes in search of his disciples. And once again, he doesn't go looking for the upper crust. He doesn't necessarily seek out the best and brightest, but he goes for those common folk. He says, no, you belong to me. This is what Jesus is talking about when later he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is fundamental to the way that God works, not only for those first disciples, but for all of us. It's not a matter of us humans seeking out God. None of us do in our natural human nature. But instead, God seeks out you and me. If you've ever worried or wondered, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of seeking the Lord. I need to seek him harder or else maybe he's just going to kick me to the curb. Fear not. He is the God who goes in search of you who seeks you out, who takes the initiative in order to claim you. It's just what we hear in the, in the small catechism where it says, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Christ Jesus my Lord or come to him, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has called and gathered me. It is God who calls disciples. It's the Holy Spirit who gathers us into his kingdom and into his church. This is the way that the Lord works. But now we're already anticipating Act 3. So Act 1 was that Jesus going out, his first arrival, seeking the common men. Act 2 was that call of the Lord, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. But then Act 3, perhaps the act that uh, arrests our attention more than any other, the response of those first fishermen. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And they have no second thoughts. They don't need to sleep on it. But Mark says immediately, twice he says it for emphasis, immediately they leave their nets and follow him, Simon and Andrew do. James and John immediately leave their family, leave the family business and go and follow Jesus. But how was that? Why was it that they left everything immediately to follow him? Is it because they had this greater spiritual will than you or I that we think, well, I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm just too secure and, and too comfortable in my life. I could never leave everything and follow Jesus the way that those first disciples did. It's not because of any difference within them. I think that there's really two reasons why it is that they leave everything straight away and follow the Lord. The first is the power and the effectiveness of the word of the Lord. See, God's word is the, is the word that does the work. Going back to the creation, let there be light, boom, and there is light. Even what we heard in our Old Testament reading today, Jonah goes and finally begrudgingly says to the city of Nineveh, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown, right? And then they, what do they do? Immediately it says the whole city, they say that again, Jonah, what did you say? Oh, we need to repent, we need to be sackcloth and ashes. Does anybody have any sackcloth and ashes? Well, get some. The word does the work. So it was for these disciples. The word creates faith in their heart. The word causes them to get up, to leave everything, and to follow him. The word, if I can use a really bad analogy, is like the clapper, right? Remember the clapper? Clap on, clap on. Okay, so, sorry, now you're going to have that stuck in your head. But it's like that in the sense that as soon as God's word comes, a disciple uh, that is now going to follow after the Lord because of the power of his word. Why do they follow him? Because of that word. But secondly, I think we have to say it's simply because of the magnetism of Jesus' own presence. I mean, if I can put it kind of crudely, 
Jesus is really cool. And when people see him, they're like, whoa, this guy is teaching with authority. He's not like these other second-rate teachers. They follow the Lord, and he's doing incredible things. He, he's, he's saying words that they have never heard before. There's just something about his very presence that they think, I need to follow this guy. I need to be with this rabbi who comes and seeks me out. Me, little old me, who has no business being a disciple or a follower of a rabbi. He calls me. How can I but follow? And you know, when I think about for us, why it is that we gather together as the people of God, fundamentally it's for the same reasons, see. It's the word and presence of Jesus that gathers and glues us together as the people of God, as the, as the body of Christ, his disciples. So we hear his word spoken and proclaimed as we receive his very magnetic presence in, with, and under the bread and wine. Here our Lord is present and speaking for you and me. That's what gathers us together, no less than it was that gathered together those first disciples. So we see this mission manifest of the Lord who calls unlikely people to follow him. But to conclude, I just want to zoom out a little bit and reflect on the fact that this is Jesus' first work. I mean, think about this. If you were the Messiah, which is always a dangerous thing to think about, but if you were the Savior of the world and you're looking to launch a universal worldwide kingdom movement, how are you going to get that started? Maybe you're going to start with a, a branding campaign. You're not worried about in-person followers. You want social media followers. You've got to get a big following on Facebook or Instagram or all these sorts of things. Or maybe you're going bigger than that. You say, no, I need to meet with all of the rulers. I've got to get together with Herod at 10 o'clock and with Pontius Pilate at noon. And then i got Caesar on a Zoom call at 2 o'clock. I've got to talk to all of the bigwigs. That's how this movement is going to move forward. Or maybe you say, you know what, let's just cut out the middleman and we're just going straight for world peace, y'all. That's right. I'm the savior of the world. And I say, boom, world peace now, done. Somebody give me a latte. Is that how you would do it? That's how I would do it. You know, not too hot, please. Uh, Latin. Anyway, uh, no, but this is not what Jesus does. Instead, he says, what's the first thing I need to do? I'm going to gather some ragtag, ragamuffin disciples. This is how it works. Because, and I think this is a reflection of how we have been created, as I often say, we are created for community. All the way back in the beginning, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. We were made to be in community, and we have been recreated for relationships. Yes, God saves you as an individual. He forgives your individual sins, but he doesn't leave you there. Right away, immediately, he gathers us together into the body of Christ, into his church. This community of the faithful is not just some optional add-on to the life of faith, okay? It's not the sunroof. It's more like the steering wheel. It's something that is vital and essential to who we are as Christians. Gathering together as his disciples, as the people of God, it's part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. And it occurs to me that, you know, maybe a year ago, say, we could have taken this a lot more for granted. Am I right? I pray that as we move through this pandemic and, and come out of it, that we never take for granted again, that we are part of the community of believers, that we're able to gather together. 
I want to leave you with this quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I often turn to, the great 20th century German Lutheran pastor, in his little book, Life Together. He writes this. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day or even every week, talking about the gathering of God's people. It's easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Yeah, we're just a a group of ho-hum believers, just ordinary, common Christians. But make no mistake, God is doing an uncommon thing in, with, and under you and me. What a gift of grace that we gather together that here, in this ordinary place, the Lord is manifesting His kingdom. Thanks be to God. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.